Greetings. Welcome to the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Chuck Randolph, Ontic's Chief Security Officer. From 30 years as a military officer and 20 transforming corporate security teams to function beyond their traditional roles, protection, risk management, and threat mitigation have been front and center throughout my career. This podcast series will explore the turbulent world of risk, security, and protective strategies through conversations with leaders and innovators in the field. Now, on to the conversation. Jack Stradley is a leader and entrepreneur with over 40 years of worldwide experience in security, risk management, crisis response, and enterprise value creation. He's the founder and CEO of Xlog Global, offering risk management and crisis response services to keep people safe. Prior to Xlog, Jack was the co-founder and CEO of Crucible, a preeminent provider of high-risk environment training, security management, and consulting. He started his career in the U.S. Marine Corps, serving 20 years as an infantry officer with a broad experience in special operations, counter-terror, and counter-drug operations. Jack, welcome to Ontic's Protective Intelligence Podcast. Chuck, I really appreciate your time. I'm uh, very happy to be here. Thanks. Yeah, of course. And let's let's be honest, you don't do a lot of podcast interviews. So I do feel fortunate that we were able to nail you down to uh, to talk about risk and, and risk mitigation. Well, I'm looking forward to it. This is going to be an interesting experience. As you said, I haven't really done too many of these, so we'll see how it goes. <laughs> well, I mean, Jack, we've known each other for some time and and you're someone that I, I feel is is really a mover and shaker in in the gray zone. And what I mean by that is you're you're quiet, you're behind the scenes. Uh, you're very thoughtful. And when you do come forward and you have something to say, I mean, it's, it's, it's very important. You know, someone only has to kind of consume the media to get a sense that we're in a state of, as we say, an ontic permacrisis, you know, and in my role as chief security officer, you know, I get paid to look at risks and things that are affecting our company and our clients. You, my friend, sit at the center seat of an organization that among many things helps organizations identify, manage, and work through, I don't know, let's just say critical situations. I'm curious, how did you find yourself here? Well, uh, as you know, I, I started my career at a young age in the United States Marine Corps. I spent 20 years uh, primarily in the infantry and uh, doing cool things around the world. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the, the recon community, force recon community, uh, was a Latin American foreign area officer, and so spent several years down in Latin America. Uh, was an exchange officer with the Chilean Marine Corps Commandos. And so that really opened my eyes. It gave me a broad experience in, you know, quote unquote, security, risk management, crisis response. Uh, it, it turned me into the man that I am today. And so when I retired from the Marine Corps, uh, I knew that I didn't want to take the normal path that my peers, many of my peers took, which was to, you know, stay associated and, you know, move from one cubicle to another cubicle and write white papers and, you know, plan policy and everything else. I kind of had an entrepreneur, I kind of had it, had and have an entrepreneurial bug. And so before my retirement, I started thinking about what I could do that would give me autonomy, some self-determination, allow me to, to do, as I've said a million times, I like doing cool things with cool people. And so, I uh, started looking around and thinking about it and uh, and ran into an old uh, military buddy who had gotten out a few years before me who was was doing some high-risk environment training just kind of off of his kitchen table. And so I uh, started talking to him about possibilities in the future, and we kind of linked up, and we founded a company that uh, was called The Crucible. 
uh, in Northern Virginia and it started out just doing training for special mission units uh, before 9-11, before there were a lot of them and a lot, a lot of people doing that stuff. Uh, 9-11 came along and uh, things kind of blew up and uh, we grew. Uh, we're noticed by a, a big uh, corporation in New York called Kroll uh, mm-hmm. by them. Uh, they made us an offer we couldn't refuse. Uh, and then I went to work at a uh, publicly traded company as a chief operating officer for their security group, uh, which really gave me broad experience into the business side of things. Right. Uh, mergers and acquisitions, looking at profit and loss sheets, looking at valuations, along with running the day-to-day of a you know, couple dozen business units across the world uh, with a P&L of about $100 million. And so uh, that was my my true uh business degree mm-hmm. uh so that that lasted for a while and then things sort of wound down and and uh we we got rid of the crucible i left there and decided i wanted to move on on my own and so i founded xlog uh mm-hmm. xlog actually in 2014 on the back of a of a contract uh that was security and logistics in libya uh for a mm-hmm. uh, power company there and so Spent a couple of years with that contract uh, and uh, through a lot of crisis there in Libya, uh, took care of that company for a couple of years. uh, And there's a much longer version of that story that we probably don't have time for. Uh, But that was the uh, that was the foundation of Xlog was, you know, one contract, big contract in Libya uh, where every day was crisis response, crisis management and (laughs) security situations and everything else. Uh, not to mention I had to pay people and move stuff from point A to point B and international things and all that good stuff. Well, that's interesting because if you think about it, like, you know, you take like a business continuity organization or enterprise crisis management or something and they do months and months of like we're planning, we're doing uh, white, you know, we're doing uh, tabletops, we're doing strategic war gaming and all that. And, you know, something like Libya where, you know, very logistics heavy of just moving people around. I mean, you're doing that day to day to day to day over and over and over, correct? Well, absolutely. And I mean, that was the part of the biggest part of the job was what we called, I think it's a British term, journey management. And so right. just, just getting people and stuff from one city to the next was a high risk, high threat move. And uh, so, so, but, but, but along with that, it was the logistics, uh, you, you know, Guns and bullets are fine when you need them, but you need fuel and <laughs> drivers and tires and, you know, repair parts and all the rest of that stuff. And you can't leave that logistics train out. And again, the Marine Corps prepared me for that as well as it does most uh, military people. You understand that, you you know, you can only fight so long, but you need your you need resupply and you need to be able to get from point A to point B. So it was a very natural fit. I just brought my military training to, you know, the civilian market into an austere environment. And it was it was just kind of like being at home again. No, I think you're right. And I think it's something we in the military, especially if you've been, been involved in logistics or you've been involved in like log trains or supply trains or just making sure that we can keep momentum on the front by ensuring that we ha- have the proper logistics vehicle behind it. You know, that's a very transferable skill that I, I think a lot of people, especially come in the military, they, they somewhat underplay that or, or maybe they just don't think about it. Yeah, I, th- I think you're exactly right. I think that, it, that, that I mean, it, at the very get-go, and I hire military vets, and I look at resumes all the time, as I know you do too, and, and I'm sure you do as I do, coach people on them, uh, because it's hard to translate 
what you did in the military to someone who hasn't been in the military, uh, you know, in, in language without using a lot of, uh, you know, a, a lot of uh, acronyms and, and words and terms that, that just don't translate to the business world. And so, you know, people have gotten better at it than they did, you know, years and years ago when I made the transition, but because there are places you can pay to help help you do that. But it's super important. Uh, I think people, you know, uh, uh, an E3 or an E5 in the military thinks, well, I haven't really done anything. No, you've done a lot. Uh, you've seen a lot and done a lot. You just don't realize that you're, you're, you know, you are exceptionally trained and exceptionally experienced and you should, you know, you should leverage that. Well, I think about an aircraft carrier. If you, you know, uh, uh, I did some time as a lieutenant colonel was doing a, a training course at National Defense University. We were on an aircraft carrier, you know, long story before that. And it struck me that a 19-year-old is piloting that vessel. Absolutely and right. And if you've They're, ever seen or you really conceive an aircraft carrier, I mean, it is force projection. Here is the United States on in your waterway. I mean, and that massive piece of real estate is in the hands of a 19-year-old. Want to talk about pressure and responsibility. Absolutely right, and you know they're they're at the helm, and they're and they're you know held to a very high standard and uh, with a with a great deal of responsibility, and that but that's across the military. I mean, there's yeah. there's I was I was a 20 year old second lieutenant with a 81 uh, millimeter mortar platoon in the middle of a field in the Philippines with live ammunition, you know, uh, responsible for the safety, care, and feeding of my 50 man platoon uh, at 20 years old. So you know, yeah. most people don't get that experience. Uh, and you know, but in the military you do, and you just think it's a normal day. Well, Jack, let me ask you something. You said, you know, you became, you know, I, I first couple of questions first, like walk me through your observations in the security industry, in particular your space pre nine 11 and post nine 11, you know, what's Jack's observations on the way things might've changed. It, well, things the, the the wars have changed a lot, and technology has changed a lot. And so, you know, I would think, in my mind, those are the two kind of biggest drivers mm -hmm. uh, and the biggest change agents that we've seen. Uh, pre nine eleven, you know, I was I was in elite units, <clears throat> but there weren't very many of us, and there wasn't a war to fight. There were you know shadow things going on, but uh, you know it wasn't it wasn't the same experience that the post nine eleven military. Uh, got mm -hmm. particularly special operations forces. Uh, and so I think, uh, you know, all that kinetic action and then the technology uh, associated with that from cell phone tracking to drones and digital and all that uh, it is, has changed things and changed the profession. And then, you know, just like, <clears throat> like, well, throughout history, what happens in the government, what happens in the military, what happens in law enforcement trickles down to regular, quote unquote, yep. regular security, yep. uh, you know, after a while, because that's the natural flow of things. And so uh, what was elite and, you know, top secret 20 years ago is, you know, now commercial off the shelf and, uh, you know, available for any security officer to use. Uh, and those are, you know, game changing technologies from from infrared, you know, thermal cameras and and drones and, you know, uh, uh, secure communications and, you know, mm -hmm. are talking about cybersecurity and the rest of that and uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning. And you go on and on and on. I mean, the world has changed dramatically. Yeah, I was just talking to somebody earlier today about uh, and we were reminiscing about GPS tracking that you could put on your principal or your protectee's vehicle when that seemed like a wow, that was a big deal. Of course, it required 
that it had to have a good battery. It was quite cumbersome. And, you know, at, at that time when that was happening, that was a big deal. And now, I mean, you know, you, you can you can go to whatever technology store and get something you can toss in somebody's bag that will allow you to to track a principal's movements. I've got an app on my phone that does it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's super easy. It's free. Uh, so, you know, you went from what, as I recall, if I maybe date myself, polar bear, uh, you know, yep. and trying trying to hide a hide a GPS tracker and a Rolex watch for, for your protectee uh, to you know now I've got an app on my phone and uh, you've got a chip in your car and uh, you know sh- sh- some people have chips in their body. Hey, so, yeah. hey, hey man, everyone wanted those Breitling watches that would oh, track. Yeah, so that was <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you another question, just from an observational point of view. You know, you went from let's. Let's say planner, practitioner of security and military operations. I, I don't want to downplay being an FAO or an exchange officer. I, I, you know, that gave you great planning and course of action development skill. But what did what was your observations? You said, you know, hey, I became the COO of a company that was doing security work. That had to be quite eye opening in terms of like now you have to look at a. You're still in the industry, but I need you to look at a broad scale of things. So almost being being involved as much in the business as you are doing the business. Did you have any aha moments or anything when, when you were, were the COO and you were, you were like, wow, we're, we're, we need to think differently or do differently? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the, the main thing I, I found in, a, in an organization that we, the organization I was in that I eventually was COO of was that it was, you know, security was so, there were so many different definitions of security. I had a company that did strictly bomb blast mitigation on buildings and things like that. So they were, it was a bunch of architects. And then I had a bunch of VP guys that, you know, ran around with surveillance kits and, you know, sticking out of their ear and, and thought about, uh, you know, motorcade tactics and things like that. And those two people never talked to each other. They, they were two different complete business units. And of course, the, the, one of the things Marine Corps taught me, taught me was combined arms team. Uh, you know, you don't fight in a silo. You you bring your artillery, you bring your logistics, you bring your air, power, air power, uh, and you all work seamlessly together to you know apply the entire force. And so that was my aha moment was that that, that here we are. Uh, you know, after we'd figured it out and become purple in the military and, and joint operations in the civilian world, it was still siloed, and even to this day, it's still siloed. No, I, I think that's a tremendous thing that you get from the military, especially if you've been, you know, senior NCO, a warrant officer or, or an officer is like the idea of joint, or as you just said, purple, which in the military and, and a lot of law enforcement uh, communities, you know, purple means a joint environment. And we used to say everything's purple. Right. And I oh, think, just- I think that's a tremendous skill set. being able to look back and say, Hey, EP, you're doing this crisis management. You're doing that event folks. You're doing this. Are we talking? Are we talking the same language and do we have a common operating picture and all those things? Well, and then, you know, the second part to that, and it's it's my reality day to day now is, uh, you know, do I, I, a smart man once told me that doing the work is the easy part. Getting the work is the hard part. And <laughs> I found that to be true from day one and still true today. Uh, you know, there are tremendously talented people with skills. And applying those skills to do "quote unquote" security or protection or or analysis or whatever is really kind of easy. It's bringing all the pieces together and then showing value, making people understand the value, creating value. Uh, because security for security's sake is not necessarily valuable, uh, but yeah. smart security is when you can when you can quantify or articulate 
the risk and the reward for what you're doing. And then even then there's no perfect solutions. There's, you know, you can't live inside Fort Knox and never leave, you know, there's perfect security, but then that's not a real, that's not a realistic approach. So there's always trade-offs. Sure. Uh, there's always uh, a risk tolerance that has to be understood uh, and met. And so, you know, that's the ongoing struggle because risk tolerance for each one of us is different. Well, and as you say, I mean, it's, it's getting the work, understanding the, also it's understanding what the end state is for the client or for the organization. You know, if I'm say a superstar, it's important for me to be out in the public. And like you say, I can put you in a Fort Knox situation, but all of a sudden my Q marketing score goes down, my ability to get work goes down. I mean, there's a lot of things also about really understanding your client base or understanding your, your customer, your strategic partner base. And, you know, some of the, it sounds like some buzzwords, but it's true. You are providing value. I mean, that's all that, that yeah. ultimately is what matters is, are you a value to the client, to the customer, to the protectee, to the principal? Uh, if you're not, then you're not going to be around very long and, and you're not going to be employed or you're not going to have a business. Uh, and sometimes articulating that value is really the hard part. Uh, yeah. And I, there's a mistake to sell on fear, which I, I am oh, not yes. a fan of. I've never been a fan of, I mean, th there's something about selling on reality, but yep. you know, if the reality is, Hey, I need to have a meeting in the deepest, darkest, austere environment, you know, my job maybe isn't necessarily to say, no, it's to un have you understand what the resource pull on your organization is going to be in order to have that meeting happen and have some understanding about, yeah, this is the best we can do under the resources we have to make sure that happens. Are you in or out? No? Okay, well, here's another option. Well, well exactly. And that's it. I mean, again, there's no perfect security and, and there's cost associated and there's there's risk associated and it's it's understanding that and it's making that, that uh, risk or reward uh, determination. But again, quantifying it and, and articulating it is usually the hardest part or the, or the, you know, the place where people fail. Well, yeah. And let me ask you along it, because again, like I said earlier, you're in the center seat of an organization that really helps a lot of organiza organizations deal with, you know, purposeful word, critical situations, whether it's Ukraine or KNR situation or understanding their, their greater risk intelligence monitoring environment. I mean, you know, Mike Tyson said, you know, it's all great till you get punched in the face. I mean, how do you help Jack organizations consider risk planning and, and organizing mitigation issues without having it consume them or consume their resources? Well, and consuming the resources is the big thing because, you know, the security budget is usually the first one to be cut. And it's really hard to articulate a need for more guards, more gates, more cameras, more alarms, more anything that you need, more bodies. Uh, and so, you know, one of the, the most important things that I've already been alluding to is, is that the chief advocate, the chief security officer, the person responsible for it has to understand the stakeholders and what their positions are and understand a profit and loss sheet and the, the costs associated with it. I mean, you know, if, if you're, if, if securing this facility is going to cost so much that it drives us into bankruptcy, well, then there's, you know, there's no point. Uh, and so also understanding that you have to, to, to make uh, smart decisions, but sometimes can't have exactly what you want. Uh, to me, though, the, you know, going back, the first step to, 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 to really 
you know, it's, it's, it's the military. It's doing, it's doing planning. It's creating SOPs. It's doing drills. You know, you don't, you don't always go out and shoot the bullets. You don't always go out and, you know, drive the terrain. You do your tactical, you know, evaluation and on a map, on a map and you do rehearsals and all that kind of stuff. And I think, you know, step one that is very often overlooked is doing a critical evaluation of what your requirements are, what your assets and resources are, what your, you know, your highest criticality event is and, you know, what your least likely event is, and then allocating resources and time and effort based on that evaluation. I mean, none of us can see the future, but you can certainly narrow in on the most likely things that could happen and the most critical things that could happen that were the most immediate or impactful things that could happen and then build a plan. And, yeah. and, you know, if you've got a plan and you've got procedures and you drill and that's the other weaknesses you I know you've seen and I've seen. And even in the military, you you know, you have, can have binders and binders in our day or my day. And, you know, nowadays it's on a it's on a SharePoint file somewhere. But, you know, the big thick binders on the shelf with an inch of dust on them because uh, someone wrote it all down and then no one ever looked at it again. Uh, and so, yeah, you got to you got to got to train. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little bit about Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of safety, security, and protection, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. That is why we created the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. The center is a trusted resource for those in security, safety, and protection communities. We share strategies and best practices, insights on current and historical trends, and lessons learned through dialogue, discourse, and alternative analysis from some of the industry's top practitioners. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.co slash center. That's ontic.co slash center. A couple of things on that that I, I think are spot on. One is I think a lot of people will downplay or they or, or they uh, they short sheet the assessment because we can come up with all the plans we want in the world, but if we don't understand what it is we have to work with, we're really not going to be able to put feasible plans in place. So I, I think all I think you're spot on. All work needs to start with some type of strategic assessment assessment that can inform us to the tactical mitigations we need to do. Well, exactly. And, and even in the cost and likelihood, because, I, you know, a, a simple story won't tell exactly who it is. But, you know, a, a guy right out of government went to a very high level job that, uh, you know, with a very high net worth individual and called us and said, hey, uh, you know, it's earthquake prone out here. So uh, can you guys have a helicopter on standby, you know, in case we need oh, to my Lord. Act I mean, <laughs> it was a serious question. And coming from where he was in the government, you know, you know, the guy he was protecting in the government, there's a helicopter on standby. Uh, but, but, you know, here, even though this guy was, you know, pretty rich, I, you know, I mean, said, don't even take that to your client. I mean, if you say that he's going to fire you because you're talking about spending, you know, hundreds of thousands, literally millions of dollars a year, to just have a helicopter on standby, just in case there's an earthquake without even thinking about the, the practicality of actually, you know, deploying that resource. Well, and you're right. I mean, let's say, hey, you're a high net worth, fan, you know, individual, Jack, you call me up and and I say, hey, you got to have a 24-7 residential team. You need to do the math and the numbers on that and really understand when you go to your client, like it's going to cost you 
you know, X point whatever million dollars a year to maintain a 24 by 7 residential team. And we're going to add on top of that if we're going to put some type of risk monitoring or GSOC. And, you know, again, you got to go back to that assessment, understand, and then understand what the resource drag is going to be. So you can talk about the value. And, and, and the resources are important, too, because a lot of us, you know, a lot of us are hammers and we see nails everywhere we go. Uh, but the reality is, you know, one of the things I learned in the, in the military was problem solving, creative problem solving. And so, uh, you know, if, if where you came from in the government or your past experiences, and I've seen a lot of this is, well, the answer to my problem is just put more bodies against it. That's generally not a good answer. Uh, you know, on rare occasions, you just need to brute force it. But generally, there's, especially nowadays, technology uh, that can, you know, that can be a force multiplier that can, that can actually help uh, or, or procedures. Uh, you, know, you know, instead of, you know, you know, you know, all this stuff, but, you know, don't show up at, at 8 o'clock in the morning. Show up at 9.30. And that difference alone can save you a million dollars. Uh, but no one ever thought of that because, well, the guy has to be there at eight o'clock and no one said, well, can we be there at nine 30? I mean, that's a ridiculous example, but it is an example. Uh, and so, so, you know, I think that's it is that, that you have to be thoughtful. You have to be creative. You have to understand, uh, that you can't always have everything you want. And so how do you work around that? Well, it's critical thinking also on the, on the practitioner's part, on our part as security professionals, like we have to go into it with a critical eye and, and ask questions and ask whys and try to understand and, and avoid whatever bias we might bring from a former agency or, or organization. So I think you're dead on. Well, and that's, that's, you know, part of the services we provide without, you know, uh, without uh, tooting our own horn too much, but that's the thing is we, it's interesting that we go into to enterprise organizations and there'll be a chief security officer there that has a very impressive resume, but they are victims of their experience. And, uh, you know, and so it's a, a, the smart ones, the, the, the forward thinking ones will say, I need a different view of this. And I know I know what I see. But what does someone else without my background see someone else without my experience with it, with a different experience? See, And so I think that, you know, the, the, the people I think that are really innovative and forward leaning are willing to to look at it a different way or have someone else make recommendations or look at it a different way so that you're not just, you know, it's not a self-licking ice cream cone. You're, you know, you go, oh, yeah, I really do have a gap here or, or I really don't need that because there's a way to mitigate that another way. And I didn't know it. And, and again, with changing technology, if you're not on the if you're not on it, uh, you know, like you guys, I mean, a few years ago, there wasn't an on tick, you know, now there is. And, you know, now it's you know, you've got a cool capability there if you're aware of it. Let me ask you a question. Um, you're involved when a lot of things go south, air quotes, for organizations. And, you know, essentially, how do you help organizations or what's your recommendation for maintaining a presence of mind? You know, I think about, I'm, I'm going to call it the organizational flinch. You know, you and I have both been through close quarters combat and defensive tactics. And one of the things you learn is like, you got, you have to be able to manage through the flinch. And I think about the organizational flinch, like, oh, we just had a Fukushima or we had a major weather alert or we had something like a, a Ukraine situation cook off and now we're affected by it. How do you help organizations fight or what's your recommendation to, to help organizationally fight through a flinch so we can continue to, to have presence of mind and, and make decisions? Well, I, I think, you know, certainly this isn't an original words or, or thought, but I think that most people react in a crisis. And that's the last thing you want to do is react. You want to take a beat. Uh, now, that beat can be a microsecond, 
Uh, but you take a beat and you evaluate. You look, you listen, you think, then you act. Act deliberately. Don't react. And and again, the, the, you know, this is can literally be microseconds seconds in some of the situations you described earlier. But a lot of times, you know, you have a minute or an hour or a day before you have to commit uh, to a course of action, and you should take as long as you have, but no longer to evaluate things and then make a conscious decision and and then of you know continue to evaluate because if it's not working uh it's maybe time to change course uh so so but but i think what happens is most people get consumed by a crisis and they have a knee-jerk reaction now one of the you know one of the things that that uh, protects against that is as we spoke about earlier is having a plan haven't drilled it, understanding. And so it's not completely unfamiliar. It's like, oh, okay, we talked about this. I thought about this. Yeah, we did a drill about this. So I know step one. Uh, step one is automatic. Step one is ingrained. Step one is I have to take no thought to take step one. Step one buys me a minute to think about step two. You know, I'm thinking about you and I are both infantry folks. I know you're the Marines. I came from the Army. But this, you know, think about uh, movement to contact which was a, a core mission of anyone in the infantry. And some people who were in that position listening in, they're like, I, I know where he's going with this. Like, you're, I think you're, 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 you're absolutely correct. Like, look, we had something happen, move it to contact. We just had contact or movement to critical incident. We just had critical incident. How are we thinking about that? What's that moment? And now where are we going from here? I, I, I think that that's, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Well, yeah, I think it translates great. I mean, you know, you, you, you get contact left and, and if everyone rushes left, it's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a trap, uh, you know, so you got to evaluate what's going on. <laughs> you know, it always happens. Yeah. I mean, many people, you know, you, you talk to a first responder and, you know, some folks that man an ambulance will say, hey, look, I purposely leave my bag in the vehicle so I can walk up, see what I have. And then I walk back or jog back to my vehicle because I need that 35 seconds to make a plan. What am I going to do? What do I need first? Exactly. And, you know, some people will, will think that, they, you know, it's that flight, fight, you know, freeze. It's not freeze, uh, but it is thoughtful. It is a beat. You don't, you almost never have to immediately react. Again, fraction of a second, two days, but uh, react is bad. Act with purpose is good. Well, Jack, you guys now, as opposed to maybe in a prior life where you were possibly on the more pointy end of things or, you know, the tip of, of something sharp. Now you're slightly more in a support role. I mean, you know, and often when issues happen, everyone thinks it's all hands on deck and everybody needs to be doing something. And if I'm not seeing moving quickly and doing these things and I'm, you know, I'm not adding to it. I mean, what are your thoughts around the best way to add value in a crisis if you're in, in that direct support role? Well, and again, everything, everything I learned, I learned starting in the military and it's, you know, you've heard this phrase before. It's not a mar- It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And so what usually happens is there's a crisis and everyone rushes to action and everyone's busy and everyone doesn't realize that we're going to be at this for a week or we're going to be at this for 36 hours uh, and things are going to change. And uh, the immediate crisis is going to be followed by spinoff crisis and other to- uh, other actions that need to be taken. And so if you're not, you know, responsible for the, the immediate response to whatever that crisis is, it's, uh, you know, take a step back and you be the guy who looks up at the horizon. Uh, because sure enough, the guy who's dealing with the crisis is going to have tunnel vision. They're going to be looking right down the barrel 
and maybe not see the answer, not see a solution because they can't not look at the problem. And so if you're in a position where you can take a breath and look up and look around and peek around a corner and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, I know you guys are working really hard to solve this thing, but, uh, you know, there's this opportunity over here. There's this other threat over here that you didn't think about. And you'd have to give yourself time to think deeper and think broader. Uh, and then when it's time, you know, either you find a find a role for yourself that you have to, you know, that this is of value. There's a plan and I can add value by doing this. Uh, or I can support. Uh, this guy's been going for 24 hours straight and he's about to collapse. He's a mess. Uh, I will relieve you. Go sleep for 30 minutes. Yeah. And I, th I think there's something to be said, like when you're in a support role, it's okay to be silent support. I'm here. I'm waiting. Mm -hmm. Make sure you know right. I'm here. I don't need to overdo it or get in the way of a planning process, but be quiet, be observant. No, I think that's great. Yeah, no, I absolutely. And think, think, look, listen. Uh, sometimes it's better just keep your mouth shut and look and listen. And then at the right point, you can interject when it makes sense. Well, and I, you're on to something too, because in a crisis and everyone's trying to be the cook, sometimes it's the sous chef that's listening that says, okay, we all just said that. This is what, you know, are we considering anything else? And I guess you could say it's constructively disruptive in the best of ways, or it's a bit of a red team. Uh, and I don't mean, you know, red cell, but like red teaming, like this is our course of action. Let me purposely think about devil's advocate and other things so that we're thinking about unintended consequences. Absolutely. And, and that is an absolute critical skill to be, to be self-critical, to be uh, self-reflective, to look at what you're doing when you have a chance and make sure that you're not drinking the Kool-Aid, that you're not missing something important. Jack, you, like I said, you, you deal with a lot of organizations in a lot of parts of the world. I mean, what are you seeing, especially like post, uh, let's say post COVID, is there any themes? Is there anything that you're seeing that you think people should be thinking about or considering as we look at risk in the latter part of the, uh, this year? Chuck, what I see is, is what we've been seeing, uh, for the last several years, uh, you know, obviously with COVID and the world situation, regional conflicts and, and terror and everything else that the world is just uh, a little more chaotic and a little more dangerous than maybe it was a few decades ago. And I think that that is the way things will be for the foreseeable future. I think that, uh, that we have to get used to this new normal, uh, which means there's, uh, you know, more risk, uh, more, uh, more things to consider in going about our normal lives and going about business or personal travel or anything. Uh, I think you just have to ex understand and accept that uh, rather than, than bury your head in the sand and say, oh, I wish it was better or, I, you know, I, the, the boogeyman's out there and I'm afraid to leave my house. But we can't do that, but we do have to accept and acknowledge that things may have changed and uh, we have to go back to the theme. We assess uh, the risk against us and what our risk tolerance is and what we can do to mitigate that risk. And then we go on about running our business and living our lives and do the best we can. Uh, there's no, you know, there's no guarantees in this life. So we just all muddle through and do the best we can as, as wisely and uh, efficiently and effectively as we can possibly muster. Jack, if, if we consider this like state, let's call it risk fatigue that we're in right now and whether it's more dangerous or less, it's definitely, it's, it's more accessible to us as an average citizen to see it. I mean, do you have any thoughts as a leader 
uh, who deals with, you know, multiple crises on a, on a, on a particular day, like for any security leaders out there listening, I mean, what's your thoughts as, as a boss in managing your people during this constant state of uh, crisis? Well, I mean, truthfully, you know, everything's changed and nothing's changed in that, uh, you know, good management, good leadership is good leadership and good people do good work. And so the, you know, the, the dynamics or the playing field may change a little bit, but that didn't change the fundamentals. The fundamentals are the fundamentals. And so, mm-hmm. you know, what I did 20 years ago and the way I treated my people and the way my team worked is not that different than it is today. Uh, I do think that, that, you know, we are inundated with information and that's, you know, not a revelation to anyone out there that's got a, uh, an iPhone. Uh, but the, the hard part is, is to just, you know, be able to, to see through the noise and the chatter and try and get to the fundamentals and the foundation and understand, okay, there's a lot of noise, a lot of chatter. Again, you know, you're used to it. Uh, but what does this mean to me? And how does this affect me? And how does this affect my plans and what I'm doing? And again, that's, that's part of what we try to do for people is help them with that. Uh, cut down the noise, turn the rheostat down a little bit and focus on what's important, what is fundamental. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, it's, I think it's, there's something to be said for telling your people like, it's okay, go get a cup of coffee, go take a walk. I'll man the wall, go do what you need to do. This will be here in an hour. And if something happens, I'll call you. Right, right. Absolutely right. So how do people follow you, Jack? What's, what's up with Xlog? I mean, if, if, somebody wants to get more, I know you're, you can be somewhat elusive. So how, how can somebody follow you? And if they want to, well, I, I, yeah, I'm not a big social media guy. I think I'm on LinkedIn, but uh, I got like seven friends or whatever they're <laughs> I called. I think I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think, I think you're one of my seven buddies. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we've got a website out there and, and we have a LinkedIn page for the company and, uh, we, you know, we put things out, some, some marketing stuff and blogs and, and, you know, uh, we're, we're going to seminars and webinars and things like that. So we're, we're trying to be findable. Uh, me personally, yeah. I, I've actually got, like I said, a really talented, smart, professional team, uh, that makes me look good. So I, I basically sit around and do nothing most of the day and, uh, and let them do their thing. And, and so I love to see them do their thing. I mean, that's, you know, I'm, I'm super excited by seeing a good team work. I'm, I'm very excited about, you know, innovation and new things. I mean, that's, that's why I do this. I, I do this because I, I, I think it's fascinating. Uh, it, you know, it, it, it keeps me engaged. I'm engaged with good people. I'm solving problems and making a difference, being a, being a service and benefit to others, whether it's a client or an employee or a partner. Uh, you know, that's the reason I get out of bed every day. It's what I've been doing for more decades than I care to, to remember. <laughs> and as a leader, it's great to be able to attach a why that's something more meaningful, um, especially when you can get up every day and you say, hey, I have a great team doing great things. We're considering innovation, but at the end of the day, we know we're helping people and organizations. So kudos to you, my friend. Oh, thanks. I mean, that's, that's what it's all about. That's what you guys are doing too. Absolutely. Jack, I want to thank you so much, my friend, for being on Ontic's Protective Intelligence Podcast. I, again, I know you're elusive. 
So I, I do appreciate that. I might be one of the few folks that you've actually done a podcast interview for. Uh, you're actually the first, if I must, if I have to admit, this is my first yes. podcast. So there you go. You, you, no one, no, no one knows. <laughs> no one knows. <laughs> yeah. But thanks tell, again, tell my if friend. It's, bad. I, no, it, it's excellent. I really appreciate you taking time with us. All right, Chuck. I really appreciate it. I, and I do appreciate it. It was, it was really a great experience and I really appreciate the, the thoughtful and insightful questions. It was, it was a lot of fun. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co slash center. Again, that's ontic.co slash center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Monteverde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smoke and Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.co or visit ontic.co slash center for more information. Thanks for listening.